This is a very, very big Shabbat. Who knows why this Shabbat is so big? Because it's called the big Shabbat. It's called Shabbat Hagadol. This is the Shabbat that precedes what? Passover. Pesach, right? Which starts next Friday night, as Dave said. So this is the big, great Shabbat. Now, for you, the listener, though, that this might be anything but great, because it's the rabbi's responsibility on Shabbat Hagadol to give you an exhaustive, longest of the year, incredibly detailed message about all of your Passover preparations, everything you need to do, all the rules, cover all the laws, and give you the information that you need. There's a lot you need to know. Like, what, what actually is Pesach? What is it? The, I'll tell you. You want me to? Because no one's, no one's volunteering. The Pesach is not Passover. That's what it has come to be known. Pesach equals Passover. What is Pesach? What is the Pesach? It's the sacrifice. It's the lamb or the goat. It could be either. It's not necessarily a lamb. But do we eat lamb today? Well, so here's an interesting thing to note. Going, going off of last year's, uh, la I mean, last week's message about you are what you eat. Did you know that the majority of Christians, what their Easter meal consists of outside of the United States? Lamb. Did you know that lamb is not prohibited to eat in Judaism on Passover? It is, unless it's roasted, you don't ever roast a lamb. But Sephardic Jews eat lamb, like in memory of the Paschal lamb of the Pesach. Ashkenaz Jews, which are Eastern European, which is the way I grew up, is we don't eat lamb. Instead, on the Seder plate is what? A shank bone, right? And the shank bone represents the Pesach. It represents the lamb. Because part of the reason we don't eat lamb in my house and almost all uh, American Jewish homes, probably, is because we're reminded that we're still in exile by this. When you look on the Seder plate and you see this old nasty bone sitting there, it's a lot different than being in Jerusalem at the temple eating a delicious temple roasted lamb chop. So we're reminded by this even that we're in exile, that we're not home yet. And maybe when Messiah comes and we have this Passover celebration there, then we'll all eat lamb together. But we don't normally eat lamb. Although, let me just give you this, because you may need to know this for Jeopardy. Do you know why most American Christian homes eat pork or pig on Easter? Because in the Germanic countries and the European countries, pigs were much more prevalent than lambs. Even today, it's, we don't eat a lot of lamb here or in Europe, at least Western Europe. So when it came time to have a special meal, the thing that was much more prevalent was a pig. So for Easter, it was a big celebration meal. You killed a pig and you ate it. It transferred over. That's why that's done. Last week, here, uh, Cracker Barrel's Easter ham spectacular for more on that. 
It doesn't mean it has to keep on being that, but that's how primarily we got to Ham. Now that's your Jeopardy, that's your Jeopardy bit for today. Um, <clears throat> when is the meal eaten for Passover? Correct, which is the 15th of Nisan. The lambs are slaughtered, were slaughtered on the 14th, but your Passover Seder does not start until after sundown. Why? Because it says, you know, there's all kinds of things about telling your child at night and different things. So we don't start the Passover, we don't eat until the 15th of Nisan. What is Nisan? No, it's not a Japanese auto. Well, it is actually a Japanese auto manufacturer. It's also the month. And this is the 15th of Nisan when we begin to celebrate what is called, what Sam referred to as in Hebrew, Chag HaMatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The 15th is when that actually starts. So Passover has kind of become this big uh, inclusive term but it's really called the Days of Unleavened Bread, okay? Anyway, am I keeping you awake, Steve? <laughs> I just heard that Brooklyn yawn from the back of the room. I thought I'd, thought I'd reference it. <laughs> so anyway, what I decided is that I would not keep you here for hours. Uh, and I wouldn't give you the Shabbat Hagadol message that was all-inclusive. Instead, I'll make it very easy on you. Five things you need, okay? First of all, well, I guess we could say nine things since one of them is four, but five things you need. Wine, four cups of wine. Four cups of wine. If you have issues, you can use grape juice. If there are addiction issues, allergies, whatever, you can use grape juice. But I promise you, from experience and many, many well, several decades of Passover seders, those first two cups of regular wine help get you to the meal a lot quicker. So four cups of wine. There's a lot to say there. We won't right now. Matzah. It's a commandment. That's what the Torah says. Got to have matzah. Got to. It, is, it symbolizes so much. You need to have maror. What is maror? Bitter herbs, you got to eat it. It's a commandment. It's in the Torah. You're supposed to, they symbolize so much. Last, well, no, number four, you got to tell the story. It's called the Magid. It's called the, the telling. And, and how do we tell the story? With the book that tells us how to tell the story, right? It's called the Haggadah, the telling. So you got to tell the story, right? That's four things. And there you have it. Not too long, right? You can go to lunch. Hog Pesach Sameach. We'll see you next Saturday. Oh, I did say five. Well, because there's something really, really important. As it relates to telling the story. As it relates to telling the story. This is a, this is a Gadol story. Shabbat HaGadol. This is a Gadol story. We've got Yeshua, we've got the Exodus, we've got all these different things going on. And the Haggadah, yeah, it tells us, but there's something particular that the Mishnah says. I was reading the Mishnah this week. I do that sometimes just for fun. You know, legal arguments and rulings in Judaism. Uh, I, was, I shared some with Darren this week about 
just unbelievable intricacies that are found within the Mishnah. Like, men, be careful if you want to make sure that when you're going number one, that it doesn't splatter on your clothes, do that downhill. Everything you can imagine is found and discussed in the Mishnah and the Talmud. But one, and what is the Mishnah? The Mishnah is very, very, very old. The Mishnah was codified by Judah Hanasi in 200, roughly CE 200, after Yeshua. But it takes teachings that go back way back, probably to the time of Ezra and the men of the Great Assembly. The oral traditions, the laws, all the things that passed down. And Judah Hanasi ultimately codified them into the Mishnah. The Mishnah was argued about and discussed. And it became, ultimately with the addition of other arguments, the Talmud later on. But here's what the Mishnah says about how you tell the story, which I read. It's talking to the father and it's telling him, when you tell your children, when your son asks you these questions, because that's the biggest part about uh, the Seder, it's really for the kids. It's to make sure that they're intrigued, that they're, that they're connected to an understanding. And here's what it says to the father. When the father is telling the story, he begins with the disgrace and ends with the glory. He begins with shame and ends with praise. Now listen, that is a total bummer. As if waiting four hours to eat on its own wasn't enough bummer. We start with the things that are terrible? Start with shame? Why? Why do we have to do that? I mean, that's a negative start. Well, here's the thing. There is a fifth thing. Cups of wine, matzah, maror, the telling of the story, and number five, and maybe the most important, hope. You have to have hope in your Passover story. It's not the same without it. And that's what the telling does. That's what the telling does. This is the holiday of hope. Well, starting with shame and disgrace is not really very hopeful. I mean, shame and disgrace is the opposite. It's, it's hopelessness. It drives people down into dark places. Why would we want to start right there? Well, because our ancestors were slaves in Egypt, it says. That is the real story. This is life. Real life and everyone, including your kids, especially today, needs to understand some important things about hope and living with hope. Now listen, the story of the Jewish people is about the most hopeless story you could imagine on its face. I understand that Christian persecution has been around since the beginning. Nero and the boys, they didn't like Christians. It started right away, feeding them to animals. It hasn't stopped. It's terrible. All around the world, Christians martyred for what they believe. So, and that is in no way minimized in any way by what I'm getting ready to say. But there is a very big difference between being persecuted for what you believe and for what you are. What you are. Jews throughout history have been hated 
for their bloodline, for their country, for their success, for their appearance. Slavery, genocide, inquisitions, ghettos. Here's a short list of haters, biblical and otherwise, starting way back. Pharaoh, Amalek, Haman, Antiochus, Titus, Constantine, Martin Luther, Hitler, the KKK, the neo-Nazis. The, the only thing the neo-Nazis have that makes them Nazis is that they hate Jews. They're not interested in socialism. They just want to see dead Jews. The BDS movement, the Boycott, Divest, Sanction movement, the pro-Palestinian organizations that paint you pictures of things that are absolutely not true, hating Jews. And sadly, sadly, the church and the disciples of Yeshua throughout history, sadly increasing today. By all rational considerations, the Jewish people should not be here. But we are. We are, and we're still contributing. And, and, and part of that, do you know why that is? Part of it is because of the story we tell at the Passover Seder that begins with shame. It begins with disgrace. We're used to it. It's a part of our story. We were slaves in Egypt, miserable, far from God, descended into darkness, into idolatry, no hope, no agent of hope, murdered babies, slavery, misery. What did we do to get there? Not much. Pharaoh just decided he didn't like us anymore. Things were going well, actually, for a while, and now this. I mean, we were the promised, the, the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God made these particular promises, and then all of a sudden... Hopeless, miserable, disgraced, shamed. We're far from God, hopeless. And we honestly did not do our part. That's a part of it. Is that we descended into a place of hopelessness and idolatry. And to start with shame and to start with disgrace, it did one very, very important thing for the Jewish people. It told us, you have no hope in yourself. There is no hope apart from an agent who will save you. And that has been the Jewish way. To start with shame and disgrace is to find hope, because hope is a funny thing. Did you know from a psychological perspective, hope is really one of the most important things you can ever hold on to? If you have no hope in life, you have no life. But hope is not just a good, funny feeling that you have. Hope is not hope unless it is a realistic hope. That means that there is an agent who can accomplish the thing you hope for. Hope with no agency is not hope. I could hope all day that I could go back in time and buy Amazon stock or, you know, Home Depot stock. I could hope all day that I'm going to wake up tomorrow 6'9", playing in the NBA and having a multi-million dollar contract. There's no agent for that. That's not going to happen. That's not reality. I'm not going to waste my time hoping for that. But that is the miracle of the story, isn't it? 
that God showed up. That he moved closer, that he heard the cries of Israel, it says. He says, they're crying out. They cried out in their cry for help because of their bondage ascended to God. They were hopeless in shame and disgrace. And instead, they cried out and said, God, please save us. Give us hope. Get us out of here, please. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel and he took notice of them. That means he acted, he showed up, he delivered, he redeemed, he took us out. And he does that. And he has done it for the Jewish people many, many, many times. As recently as wars in Israel, where there was no possible way that the Israeli army in its fledgling little baby state could have been able to overcome these Arab enemies. And God did. God showed up and restored hope. That's why the, Jew, the Israeli national anthem is called Hatikva, the hope. Jews have always hoped and believed that God would show up, and sometimes, often, in very, very, very dark places. And it couldn't just be a good feeling. There had to be a belief that when things get going, when the going gets tough, that God gets going. And He has, in His perfect time, this agent, this doer who could complete the action that would take us from hopelessness to freedom, from shame and despair, where the story starts, to praise and glory. Now, does that sound familiar, that story? From shame to glory. First of all, it's in every single biblical hero story you can imagine. It's the story. Jacob. Jacob, told to lie to his father, exiled, brother wants to kill me, cheated by my father-in-law. You know, just, just, and this is Jacob. He's a patriarch. He was supposed to have all these great things happening. But instead, living most of his life, imagining that his own sons had killed his favorite son, the disgrace and the shame that guy had. And his son, Joseph. Joseph, this favored brother, who gets sold into slavery by his own brothers, goes, finally makes his way up. He's the right-hand man of Potiphar. Then the seduction story. He does the right thing. It causes him to be disgraced and thrown shamelessly into a dungeon where God only knows if I'll ever get out. But what did he have? He had some hope. Moses Cast out of Israel, shepherd, wanderer, living in Midian with no life. God showed up. How in a burning bush. There are all of these stories. David running from Saul, hiding in a cave. Where did he end up? Read his Psalms. They're pretty hopeless at times. And David has a lot of shame and disgrace in his life too. But God showed up. Peter. Peter, Yeshua, don't even worry about it. They come after you, I'll be, no one's getting through me. Peter, just, 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 I'm serious. I'm your rock, Jesus. Are you with him? I don't even know the man. <laughs> now, Peter is the rock, and I'm not being disgraceful. I'm, I mean, dis disrespectful. I'm doing that for the effect. Talk about a shame story. Talk about disgrace. 
Talk about a failure. But in every one of those situations, starting down there, hopeless, low, disgraced, God moves and shows up. Why do we tell the story of shame to glory, despair and disgrace to praise? Because that's real life. That is real life. And that is the place where you develop the very strong muscle called faith in your life sometimes. Sometimes you put yourself down there. Sometimes you just end up down there. There's no answer for that. But we have to tell the story to be reminded that we're not hopeless. And I've talked all this time, I've been talking about the Jewish story, the Jewish people. But in this community of Jews and Gentiles, how much more clearly could it be illustrated? Start with shame, end with praise, particularly appropriate to this season. Then in who? Yeshua, the Messiah, who lived a perfect life. And how did that life end? In utter absolute disgrace beaten to a pulp half almost all naked hanging on a roman cross crucified having made the statements that he made and having had all the people that followed him and that's how it ends they were utterly hopeless at that point they were hiding behind closed doors we are sunk man Everything we said is a, it's a lie, Stephen. But that was not the end. It started with disgrace. And how did it end? With unbelievably majestic glory on the third day as he walked out of there. And the angels and everybody's in awe and absolutely unbelievable. Why? Because God showed up and he resurrected the Messiah of Israel, the Messiah of the world. That story, isn't it interesting how well that story, that statement from the Mishnah, start with disgrace, end with glory, fits right into what? The Easter story, right? Friday, good Friday, sinners, bad. Sunday, Tomb, empty tomb, resurrection, glory, start. But it's not the Easter story. That's the point. It's the Passover story. It's the Mishnah story. It's you got to know where you came from and what God did for you to get you where you are now. Start by remembering that place and revel in the fact that God brought you to this place. That's the story we're telling. We're telling it about the Jewish people and we're telling it about Israel, but we're telling it about ourselves. God's telling it to us and our kids must know that story and it's incumbent upon us to do it. And the thing is you learn two incredibly important things, starting with disgrace. Because disgrace and shame is a terrible place, but when you come out of it, you know one of the things it teaches you? One of two of the most important components of life as a disciple, as a human being. Shame and disgrace teaches you something. Humility. It teaches you to never forget where you came from. Shame and disgrace, I remember it. I remember it. 
and I know what it feels like. And God, I will never exalt myself. Two, life's second greatest, the secret to happiness. It's no secret. Gratitude. Disgrace and shame, humility, exalted by nothing that we did, only because God showed up. He exalted us to a place that we're called saints in glory. How could you not find gratitude every moment, every breath, every day? That's the story. It starts with disgrace. Because if we're honest, left to our own devices, that's where you end up. But you have hope with agency. It is Hashem. It is His Son. It is our Messiah, who through His shame and disgrace and exaltation to glory brought us right along with, leaned down, picked you up and said, up we go, Andy. Man, that's a story. And this is the most famous story. This is every movie's, every great movie's tagline, right? The hero story. You have somebody who has a major problem. They need someone to show up and fix it for them because they don't have the answers. And then out of somewhere, this hero shows up. It's called the story brand. It's a marketing technique. It's in Star Wars. It's in The Hobbit. It's in all kinds of great movies. But it's not a Hollywood story. It's the Bible story. It's God's story. It's the story this season forces us to recall and remember and to tell and to live in. Right? Yes. Start with remembrance of your place low. End with gratitude. What is the Seder? What is a Seder without recalling this hope? Hope has a sweet taste, much sweeter than matzah. But you got to eat the matzah. We need that hope in our tables and in our hearts, especially, you know, kids over the last couple of years, my goodness sakes. We have utterly destroyed a generation. Well, no, we haven't. God forbid. I'll never say that again. The world has attempted to destroy a generation. They need hope. They need stories of hope. And this is the ultimate one. I want to read you two things. We've got to remember to teach our children that just because it looks bad, it feels bad, it seems bad, God is not absent. Passover tells that story. So does the cross. This is what Jonathan Sachs said. Jews are not blind to the existence of evil. We feel it, taste it each year afresh in the bread of oppression and the bitter herbs of slavery. But we refuse with every fiber of our being to be resigned to it. To understand the Jewish people, one must listen to the way it tells its story. A people whose narrative begins with shame and ends with praise 
is one that knowing in its bones the reality of evil did not cease wrestling with the angel of death until it discovered the path from suffering to hope. How did they find the path? God showed up. Last quote, Viktor Frankl. You know Viktor Frankl, man's search for meaning. Auschwitz uh, concentration camp victim. I mean, a uh, victim. Victor we who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. And to choose your way sometimes is nothing more than never relinquishing the hope that you have in God. So, nothing has changed. We still need God to move. We're still in exile. The world is a mess. It's okay. We do what we can do to better that. We don't complain about it. We do what we can do with humility and with gratitude. Israel was supposed to move from Egypt to the promised land. That didn't really materialize, sort of, but not really. And look at us. The kingdom is not realized. We're all struggling. It's just part of it. But don't lose hope. We meditate on that phrase. Start with shame. End with praise. I know it doesn't sound very good. But over the last 30 minutes, I hope I've made it sound better than what it actually sounds like. Because that's what it's communicating to you. From disgrace to glory. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. At your Seder, you can see the matzah. You can see the maror. You can see the wine. You can see and you can read the Haggadah, but it doesn't tell the whole story. The hope is harder to see, but it is so important. It's there. Bring it out, my friends. And then put it back right in here. Right in here. To walk through the difficult times. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's for Friday night. Chag Pesach Sameach. Shabbat Shalom.